All right. Good morning, everyone. My name is Brian Peterson. I'm the application software analyst here at Raymond James. I'd like to welcome everyone to the Institutional Investor Conference. We're very, very privileged to have Amy Weaver, the president and CFO of Salesforce.com, here to join us today. We also have Alex and Evan from the Investor Relations team. So we're going to start a fireside chat, but if you do have any questions, feel free to email them to me at brian.c.peterson at raymondjames.com or the chat feature uh, in Zoom. So, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to see you today. Well, it's terrific to be here. Thanks, Brian. All right. Well, so we'll go ahead and get started. So I think I just want to start off with the, the fourth quarter results from last week. Uh, obviously, some, some good growth upside on the current RPO. Just you're curious if you just kind of give us a quick rundown on your highlights from the quarter last week. So I'd be happy to. Q4 was a very strong quarter, very happy with our results. One of the things that I was happiest about is we really saw a return to historical trends on new business. So going back pre-pandemic, back to those levels, which is just a terrific sign. You know, I'd also point to three other areas that had great growth. The first was Tableau. And as you know, Tableau is our largest acquisition to date, a terrific business, and they had a very, very strong quarter. Second area I would point to is Commerce Cloud, and Commerce Cloud had 74% GMV uh, growth this year, gross merchandise value. And what I love about that is this is really how we were helping our customers, you know, some of whom have kind of bricks and mortar presence, move online during the pandemic. And excited to see that growth. And then the third is public sector. And public sector, if I look back to Q1 of last year, we immediately started getting a surge of state and local governments who are reaching out, really trying to figure out what they could do to support their citizens. But it wasn't just a story of Q1. It has continued to have great growth every single quarter throughout the year. Hmm. And we just see these relationships deepening. Um, And not only in the U.S., we're seeing that around the world as well. Oh, interesting. Okay, so that's obviously a lot of good, uh, a lot of good yeah. tailwinds there. But uh, so, so I want to get started with you. It's a new role for you at Salesforce, yeah. um, and and so I, I just, as you think about your key priorities and what you're focused on, like like what are you really trying to accomplish over the maybe the next twelve to eighteen months? So it is a new role, but I'm and I'm excited about it. But you know, I've had seven and a half years as an executive here at the company, working side-by-side with Mark, and really excited to be looking at this through a new lens. In terms of priorities, growth is number one. We have an incredible growth story that is still in front of us, and we need to invest into that, and we need to get on the path to $50 billion. But that said, we've got to do that at the same time, drive efficiency. I'm just a huge believer in operating efficiencies, operating leverage. We're a big, grown-up company. We should be able to do both. And right Mm -hmm. now, we have a really unique opportunity. We're coming out of a pandemic, and we have the chance to really develop an entirely new operating model. So when I look at the next 12 to 18 months, it's really going to be about finding that operating model, finding what's working best for us, and at the same time, driving efficiencies with it. Interesting. Okay, so I will hit on the operating model a bit, but I, you know, as I'm sitting here in a virtual background and I see San Francisco, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm always thinking about Dreamforce and how busy it is, and obviously that's a huge event for you guys. And I just, you know, you think about the demand and everything, like so, so in a virtual environment, you know, pipeline engagement generation. How, mm-hmm. how does that all work? You know, absent the, the traditional Dreamforce and the, the the San Francisco love that we've all come to come to enjoy. 
Well, I'll, I'll be the first to say I miss Dreamforce. Uh, that is Me too. An <laughs> such an incredible event. The energy, the chance to connect with our customers and our trailblazers. But if I think back over the last year, it was actually about this time last year that I was forced to make one of our first really hard decisions around the pandemic. And it was mid-February, and we had the Sydney World Tour coming up. And, you know, our world tours, we have 10,000 people. They come together live, in person. These are huge kind of pipeline generation events for us. And at that time, you know, in the U.S., we had no idea the tsunami that was about to hit us. But we were seeing more issues in Asia. We were getting nervous. And we made the call that we were going to have to cancel that event. And that that was, you know, that, that, that was a tough call. I think a lot of people at that time thought we were probably being overly conservative, but we felt it was correct. We were wrapping, I remember it was a Saturday afternoon, we were wrapping up this meeting, and someone on the back of the call in marketing said, well, what if we just do it online? I said, that's what we did. We basically took all of the content we had planned for this big in-person event, and we just filmed it and stuck it online. But over the course of the year, we've gotten much more sophisticated in how we do these online events. And we've really learned that we can do high-quality, very targeted events online that really have a terrific impact on our pipe. So the test of all of that was Dreamforce. And, you know, I, I never could have imagined doing Dreamforce virtually. But we did it. We had Mark and Park, or we had Mark and Brett and Salesforce Park, which I hope you guys chance chance to watch. We still had over a hundred thousand people um, sign up for Dreamforce.com through registration. But even better, we had a hundred and forty million live stream keynote viewers. Hundred and forty million, and that is something we could not have dreamed of with an in-person presence. And what was even better than that is we were able to do 4,000 Dreamforce GU meetings. So what those are is we basically take our Dreamforce message and we make a very customized version of that for our larger customers, you know, where we can tailor who is stopping in, which executives came in, which content blocks. We were able to do that 4,000 times. And what we learned is we were able to generate pipeline, strong pipeline, that was in line with our historical norms. And you can see the confidence in our revenue guidance for this year coming off that. Now, I will, I will say, though, what we've got to figure out now, and this is a, going back to your question about looking to the next 12 to 18 months, no one wants to stay totally virtual. I'm not sure anyone wants to rush back to completely in person. How do we pull out the best of both of these worlds and really come together with a very, very effective marketing? Well, and so that's, that's a, you know, I was actually going to ask you about that, just like, you yeah. know, operations and COVID, and maybe we can do kind of a historical lens and then kind of a go forward lens. But, you know, in terms of, of what you've learned and, you know, you, like we just talked about marketing, but, you know, product development and go to market and, and thinking about what you've learned through the pandemic and then maybe how you can kind of optimize some of those motions going forward. Right. Well, I think one of the first places to start is just with our go to market team. And, uh, you know, I keep saying a year ago, but it really, uh, you know, coming up on this week, it feels like we really are hitting the anniversary, uh, so to speak, of the pandemic. If you had said to our entire army of um, AEs or account executives, you cannot step on a plane for the next year, and yet I expect you to hit great targets, they would have laughed. 
And yet, what we yeah, found, it like doesn't compute, right? No, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, but, but, but we have to, and I think especially at Salesforce, we've always had a very high touch model. We have mm-hmm. always had a very uh, in person model, and we're going to be there in person and sell this, and to suddenly have, you know, everyone working from their bedrooms or their mother's basements or wherever they wound up. And yet what we saw is that the teams had incredible flexibility, incredible resilience, and were able to turn out in the quarter that we saw for Q4. Now, a couple of the things that we did, one is we really leaned into participation and we leaned into enablement. And we tried to focus our innovation really around things that were relevant. So this is work.com, which helps get people back to the office and monitoring your workforce. Uh, vaccine cloud. So that was really critical, and it really reached our customers at a time when they were in need. But as we look forward, it's a little bit like marketing. How do we get this right? So we, we now we've learned mm-hmm. we can sell, and we can sell without ever getting on a plane. But we want to meet our customers where they are. How do they want to be sold to? Do they want to be in person? We're always going to try to optimize for the customer experience. But how do we get this right? And as we were really looking towards, you know, fiscal year 22 and plotting out, you know, our guidance for the year and our planning, we are assuming that there will be some return to travel in the second half of the year. But we're not assuming that's going to be at pre-pandemic levels. So we've got to kind of figure out how we do this. So part of this is really optimizing for the best sales experience and driving revenue. But I have to say, as CFO, I'm also really excited to see what savings are involved and you know, how we can get those efficiencies and how we can really sure. improve our bottom line at the same time. Right, great. Well, that's a good segue to my next question. I just kind of wanted to hand up the, the fiscal year 22 margin outlook. Uh, so it's flat, uh, for the year. You know, I, it's interesting because I know there's some slack included into that, into the, this number. So maybe unpack, you know, some of the drivers or moving parts that kind of get you to that flat, flat margin outlook for the year. Great. So I think at Investor Day, we kind of, uh, foreshadowed that slack was going to have quite an impact on, uh, on our operating margin. And as we went through those, we're looking at probably a headwind of about 160 basis points, and that's a combination of slack and acumen. Although, you know, I, th- I think you can figure out from the relative sizes that that is uh, largely right. slack. Largely slack. <laughs> um, it was, as we went through the planning process, it was actually very, very important to me personally that we were able to hold our margins flat for the year. Um, I did not want to start off with moving backwards. And I think it's really important as we do M&A and as we become a larger and larger and more mature company that we are able to absorb these acquisitions as they come in and find savings in our business. Um, again, this has to be a focus on growth and efficiency at the same time. So, you know, looking ahead, you know, how do we drive these efficiencies? You know, we, talked, we talked about the sales motion. Uh, we talked about T&E. We talked about marketing. Although I, I, I will pause on marketing for a second. There is not mm-hmm. at this point um, a big difference in costs between high-quality marketing online and in-person events. And the reason for that is, you know, a lot goes into the production. But also, when you have in-person events, you are partially offsetting that by tickets, 
ticket sales and registration. Ah, right. And then also sponsorships. So we're trying, you know, we're going to have to get the balance right on that one, but I do want to caution that we're not seeing a lot of savings in that area right now. And then the third is real estate, making sure that we are really effectively using our real estate going forward. So those are some of the major, I think, levers that we have going forward on managing our operating margin. Understood. And maybe looking at margins from a little bit of a different lens. I know in, in, in past investor days, you guys have talked about you know, contribution margins and, and customer level margins, you know, any, any help on unpacking that a little bit, whether that's cost of book or cost of serve, you know, any, any higher level thoughts on that in terms of the margin framework? Sure. That's actually one of the ways I really like looking at it. And I thought Evan did an amazing job at our investor day and really diving in on these areas. So we, we've seen a lot of improvement over recent years in terms of our unit economics. And the three that we really look at the most closely, cost of book, attrition, and cost of serve. So if you start at cost of book, cost of book has actually increased. We found that it's actually gotten slightly more expensive to sell, but this is this is deliberate. Um, it increases as you get more sophisticated with this, and you sell more into the industry, or excuse me, if you sell more into the enterprise, and then also as we look right. at more industry specific sales. I mean, these just require more sales resources, and it's a longer deal cycle. But the trade-off is these are also the areas that have the lowest attrition. So the right. more you're selling high in the enterprise, the more you're selling you know, multiple products. So you have a multi-cloud customer, that attrition, that attrition really goes in our favor. So by seeing a slight raise in the cost of book, it's paying off on the attrition numbers. And then the third metric is cost of sell, and we have seen that we have seen that uh, decreasing over recent years, which is terrific. That is largely from efficiencies in GNA, and I expect to keep keep driving those. Uh, the one thing I do want to know is that we have seen some modest fluctuation on all of these due to, due to the pandemic, uh, particularly around attrition. But I think the trends are great, and we will continue driving all three of these in a good direction. Understood. Understood. And I, I know we mentioned Slack earlier, but obviously yeah. that's that's some pretty big news from from last year. I know the deal hasn't closed yet, but can you maybe talk about you know some of the strategic ramifications and benefits that that, that you think Slack really brings to, to Salesforce? Great. Like as you know, you know the, the deal has not closed yet. We do expect it to close um, probably late Q2. That's not complete, completely in our hands, but that's uh, the timeline that we should people should look to. So we are incredibly excited about adding Slack to our portfolio once we close. And yet today, when I look at what Salesforce does well, we help customers digitally transform their business. You know, we help them sell better. We help them service better. We help them market better. We help them do their commerce better. And as we look forward, the number of applications used in these businesses is rapidly expanding. You know, it used to be spreadsheets and paper documents. Today, people are using, you know, everything from Coupa, from Salesforce, DocuSign, which is one of my favorites. And that increases the productivity, but we also need that integration. And I think Slack is really the leader here. And they're, they're making the integration not only of these products possible and these apps possible, but they're really integrating people. So, you know, Brett has described this as it's somewhat akin to MuleSoft. So if you look at MuleSoft when it came in, MuleSoft powers the integration of data. 
it allows you to bring all of your data in from these disparate sources and really unlock the power. You can think of Slack as being like MuleSoft with that, but really with applications and with people. If you're integrating your people, letting people work more carefully together and more closely together. And I think we're going to find that 100% of our customers have integration needs in this area. So I'm really excited to see where this is going to go. But most of all, I'm excited about getting the deal closed and really proving out our theories here. Right. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity on that once you, once you get that, that, that deal over the finish line. Um, well, I wanted to say on M&A synergies, so, you, you know, we hit on Slack, but you obviously said Tableau was really a strong point, uh, especially in the fourth quarter. So, you know, thinking about, you know, we're still, I guess, earlier days or like over the last few years as acquisitions closed. You talk about where we are in terms of synergies or cross-selling into the install base or penetration, mm-hmm. anything you can share on that? So, Tableau, you know, we're still in fairly early days for that. Um, after we acquired them, we did have, we were subject to a whole separate order for about four months. We're a little over a year of full integration for Slack. But they did have a very strong Q4, 34% growth um, year on year. And so I think that they're set up very well for fiscal 22. We're continuing to emphasize cross-selling integration between the teams, and that that will continue to be a focus. But I mentioned MuleSoft. MuleSoft has also been just a terrific, terrific acquisition. I have a hard time even thinking of them as an acquisition. It feels like they've always been around. We're about to hit the three-year anniversary. And when we acquired them, their revenue was around $250 million. They are about to pass a $1.5 billion run rate, and that is in three years. Wow. And what I love about this is, first, it shows that by focusing on what our customers need, we can really hit home runs in bringing in these acquisitions. But it also shows the strength of our integration team and how well we can bring these companies in, and then also how well we can drive them up market. And the combination of some of these smaller companies bringing them to Salesforce, where we have a very sophisticated selling motion and we sell high into the enterprise, is really, really powerful. You know, we're, gonna, we're starting to see that with Tableau. We've seen that play out with MuleSoft. And I think it's a very good sign for what we'll see with, see with Slack once we are closed. Yeah, well, those are some pretty impressive revenue synergies there, particularly on the MuleSoft side. That's, that, yeah, seriously, that's great to hear. Um, all right, so maybe hitting on a couple of the specific uh, products. I know I get a lot of questions on Sales Cloud. Uh, you know, you think about, you know, digital engagement. You know, if you had to take a step back, you know, thinking about the sales cloud and how that's helped customers through the pandemic, you know, what would you really highlight there? So on sales cloud, it's fun that you're asking about this. Um, uh, at Investor Day, Mark Hawkins mentioned that the very first question he ever got on an earnings call was about sales cloud and could it continue to grow. And Mark told me last week that when he, after he had that question, Graham Smith, the CFO before him, said that that mm-hmm. had been one of his first questions that he had received. You know, could sales cloud continue to grow? Well, in fairness, it wasn't my first question to you. So maybe it was question okay. number nine. No, no, no. So I think this, is number, this is going to be number eight or nine. But I do love okay. the fact yeah. that, you know, it's three CFOs in. We now have this product that is $5 billion, and it's still continuing to grow. And it's growing really impressively at scale. And I think, uh, it, you know, it, it's terrific. It's our flagship product. It's our oldest product. It had growth at 13% last year, even at this scale. But what I also love about Sales Cloud 
even though Graham was asked about it, or Hawkins was asked about it, I was, I've been asked about it now, it's not the same product. Um, every year we are innovating still within Sales Cloud. We've got the three releases a year. We are adding, you know, tech and acquisitions. We are doing different things for this. And, you know, I, I would point to, for example, high-velocity sales. We had built in more and more features just to help customers sell very, very efficiently. You know, lightning scheduler, lightning dialer. Um, CPQ is a great example of a very powerful uh, feature that we've added in, and that was also largely from an acquisition. It came from Steelbrook, which is like four or five years ago, and it's been great. Um, there's industries. And, you know, we've customized part of this for different industries. And that really allows just time to value. It kind of it kind of lets our customers skip right to third base when they start using that. So sales class is terrific. It's also only one of our products right now. You know, if you think about our customer 360 and that kind of clock dial we are always showing people, there are 11 other faces on that dial. And uh, it's one of our portfolio and um, growing well. So that sounds like we'll take this one up to 11, but I did want to hit on commerce side a little bit too. You mentioned the 74% GMV growth. You know, just, you know, thinking about people that, you know, maybe had traditionally sold more, you know, retail and then had shipped online. Right. It, you know, anything that you can kind of highlight or double click on, on the GMV or the, the growth, what, what, yeah. what have you seen in, in, in commerce cloud? Because that seems like such a natural synergy for your customers as they've gone through the pandemic. Yeah, commerce cloud is great. And, you know, I'll tell you, it could have gone either way. You know, commerce cloud, is retail-based, you know, the vast number of our customers are retail-based, and I think looking back, we weren't sure what was going to happen with these customers over the past year. I mean, it could have, it, this could have been a very different story, but it has turned out to be terrific as customers have really, really leaned in to their digital presence. And as I mentioned, you know, GMV went up 74% year-on-year. And GMV for us, I want to pause on this for a minute because it's a great leading indicator, but our contrast model is a little bit different from some of our peers in this space um, who are probably more directly tied between GMV and their revenue. So how it works for us is customers have GMV kind of minimum commitments as part of multi-year subscription contracts. So if they have higher GMV, what usually happens, there could be like an overage, but what's more likely is if they hit those numbers earlier than they had expected, they're going to do an early renewal or a larger renewal. So it, it's a little bit of a longer process between seeing the GMV and seeing that in revenue. So I would encourage people, okay. to, it, it, it's not apples to apples with some of our peers in this area, and we're often asked about right. that. So just be a little bit careful. But again, 74% growth. Terrific. Yeah, that's 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 pretty that's pretty impressive at scale. So, you know, it, it obviously I think I would say you know there's visibility, um, and obviously that's just one segment. But you know we have eleven to, or eleven products to talk about here. But like, can you just talk about maybe the RPO and some of the longer term targets, okay. and, and how do you think about the visibility into the growth profile, maybe versus you know a couple of years ago? Any any thoughts on the visibility here? Well, it's great. You know, we we very publicly said that we are headed to $50 billion, and that's an FY26. So that means, you know, based on our guide this year, we're going to double the company in the four following years. So we ended Q4 with around $36 billion in RPO. And, you know, really the beauty of our model is being able to see that and have it give us confidence that we're going to be able to reach key revenue numbers. Now, 
aside from RPO, one of the things that really gives us confidence is looking at our markets and looking at how fast the town is expanding. So if you go back to investor day, we, we showed that our core markets are large, they're growing fast, and I think on average it was around, you know, 10 to 12 percent is what Gartner is showing. Now, we are a product leader in every category. And as we continue to drive success and we continue to expand our functionality, that is really just expanding our opportunities. So if you look at long-term targets um, and you exclude Slack, this is implying about a 17% CAGR each year. And you look at our markets, which are also expanding in double digits, and you look at our RPO, and our ability to compete effectively and continuing to do so at this rate, it really gives us a lot of confidence in how we're going to get to 50 million. Or 50, well, 50, yeah. I'm sorry. 50 million, 50 yeah. Billion. Uh, let me get that one you right. You have a lot of confidence with 50 million. Yeah, right. Okay, I, so. Yeah, Brian, let me just tell you, I feel really good on 50 million, but uh, I, I, I feel equally yep. as good I'll, on 50 billion. So I will take, I will take the over. But. <laughs> Right, right. So I do want to hit on the remote workforce aspect. I know, you know, I'm sitting in my office. Um, you know, I've, I have spent some time in my parents' basement. Um, so, you know, look, as you think about it, you know, people trying to get work done remotely, um, you know, how do you think about, you know, how that changes things for Salesforce? Uh, you know, the ability to recruit, the ability to diversify, you know, any thoughts on that? So it's you know, we're talking a lot more about this kind of work from anywhere or success from anywhere model. And I think it's been a bit misunderstood. Um, I, I think people think that we're going to have 56,000 people working from beaches with their laptop. But as we talk, I know it doesn't sound too bad, but yeah, right. as, as we really talk to our employees, um, what we're really learning is that they want some sort of office presence, you know, the, the vast majority of them. So we have a small portion who have always worked from home and will want to continue to do that. We see that proportion growing a little bit. But for the vast majority, they're saying that they want some sort of office presence. They want to connect with their colleagues. They want to have those meetings and brainstorming sessions actually somewhere. Some of them, you know, just want to get out of their basements and get back into an office. But what we're hearing is we don't want, they don't want it to look like it did before. They don't necessarily want to be in the same office five days a week, nine to five. What they really want is some sort of flexibility, and that might be between, we're hearing the most, between one and three days in the office. And so what our challenge is, how do we continue the really unique culture Salesforce has? How do we reimagine our office space so that we are getting, we're using it effectively if someone who usually used to be in the office five days a week is now there one day a week? And how do we just reimagine what we're doing with our real estate? Um, I, I think this gives us a lot of opportunities, um, it, not only to relook at this, but to look at where we are, how we're hiring, and what sort of flexibility we have. And we're certainly early days in this, but I think it's one of our mo- most exciting levers going forward and most exciting you know, opportunities just to be changing our operating model. 
Because you mentioned that at the start, but I wanted to hit on hiring, right? Because as you think about this whole work from anywhere dynamic, it does give you the ability to add a lot of different types of people, different locations, different roles. So, you know, as 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 the CFO, obviously, you know, you you kind of control the budget. So, so how do you, how do you kind of manage that whole process with huge opportunity? And I'd just be curious to get your thoughts on on hiring plans. So on hiring plans, yeah, we're still executing to our hiring plans. We um, executed very, very strongly on those this year, which is a terrific uh, testament to our employee success or HR teams. And to, you know, really go into our growth plan, we need the continued headcount, and we need to invest into that. So we wound up ending the year with around 50, a little over 56,000 employees which is about 14% uh, increase year over year. Now, in terms of hiring the right talent, first, we believe the right talent is out there. We believe that we are getting very, very high-quality, terrific new employees coming in. But one of the new operating models and one of our new opportunities going forward is to have more flexibility in terms of where we hire. And I think that this is going to really give us uh, opportunities to get into untapped markets. We have always been very, very focused on big cities right downtown. And I think if we are willing to really embrace this work from anywhere program, if we are willing to look at more flexible schedules, I think we're going to be able to get a, you know, tap into all sorts of new opportunities for hiring going forward. And so I think today is a good segue to my next question, but, you know, just international, obviously, uh, you know, I think there was a slide at the Investor Day maybe four or five years ago that talked about how, you know, that the, the international markets were, you know, still small in comparison to the adoption curve to, to, to where you are in, in the U.S. or in North America. So just a huge opportunity. You know, how do we think about that adoption curve going forward? So international is one of the areas that I am most excited about and really most passionate about. I lived abroad for many years, and so this is something that's kind of near and dear to my heart as well. We simply put, we have an incredible opportunity in the international markets, and I think it's one that we really need to seize. I mean, this digital transformation, especially this last year, wasn't just in the United States. It wasn't just in Europe. It was all over the world. So at Investor Day, I think we showed that we had about 34% of our ARR is international. Now, that is up from 31% two years ago, but that that's not a high number. Uh, we have a lot of room to grow, and we are seeing that there's high demand in markets throughout the world. Um, one, of, you know, one of the places I would call out is LATAM. We have a terrific leader there. Um, we are seeing growth. You know, in huge, you know, a lot of small numbers at this point, but, you know, extreme growth every year. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to really continue to focus on that. Um, what, you know, one of the things that we've done that I think is really going to help us was actually hiring Gavin Patterson and putting him in as our chief revenue officer. You know, Gavin is British. Uh, he lives in London. He brings a new uh, lens to us. And simply having someone who is constantly in the room, in the C-suite, reminding us of the international markets, I think is broadening how we look at things and really helping us, you know, preventing us from being too myopic as uh, we look at our traditional markets and start to broaden out. And I'm just curious, maybe double-click, because I know it's the, the, just given the mix, it's been growing faster than the average, right? Uh, right. Uh, is there anything in terms of, 
you know, the existing products or, you know, what's, what's driven that above company average growth for international over the last couple of years? You know, I think I think it's a lot of things. I think first is just the market and the and the white space in these areas has been terrific. Um, I think having, like I said, having Gavin come in, I think a lot of it is also just uh, multi-country deals. We have incredible customers mm, okay. who are all over the globe, and we need to be able to serve them. We need to have a strategy for them so that they can log into Salesforce from Germany and from Mexico and from Japan, and. You really can't be, you can't just be an international. We have to be an entirely global company. And we have to serve global customers. And that really means adapting and making sure that we're available in every, every place that they are. Understood. Amy, right, well, anyway, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you very much for joining. Uh, and everyone will be in touch. Great, Brian. It was a pleasure. Thank you.